right, Sherry? It's it's not just you and me again. Look who's here. Our good friend Karen is joining us. Hi, Karen. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Well, it's kind of exciting. It's nice to talk to you guys. Have you all to myself. That's right. We love talking to you. Um, I think the best place I can think of to start is in the way of a little bit of an introduction. One of the reasons that we wanted to have you on, Karen, one of the things we just like the most about you is how great a job you do of just telling it like it is. You know, a lot of people in your position, and we're going to get into what your position is here, obviously, but a lot of people in your position carry around a lot of anger. They have a lot of resentment. And I'm not saying you don't have any of that, but, but you tell your story and present your story in a really even keel kind of way. And I, I think it, it really, you represent yourself well. You're very, very believable because of the way you're, uh, you're on such an even keel. So we just love that about you. And uh, that's why I wanted to have you on. One of my favorite stories, I think this is a great place to start. You have told us, maybe the reason you're able to be so even keel is because you take care of yourself and you vent in an appropriate way. Will you, <laughs> will you talk a little bit about walking the dog? You, sometimes when you walk the dog, the dog gets an earful, right? Oh, absolutely. I, um, my then husband and I used to walk after dinner to you know, process the events of the day out of earshot of our kids once they were old enough to, you know, just be left for 20 minutes or 15 minutes. And, you know, he's not here now, but I still have this old dog who will go out with other people, but he doesn't, they don't let him sniff around and take his time. And I do. So he just prefers to go out with me. And so we go out, I don't care how late it is. Our neighborhood is pretty safe. And He's just meandering around, checking all his messages all over the yards that we go by. And <laughs> I'm just sitting there thinking and talking and processing my own day's events. And just oftentimes I will have gotten, and this doesn't so much anymore, but oftentimes I received a text or had a partial conversation where I bit back every reply I wanted to make. And boy, the dog is the one that gets to hear me say, Here's what I should have said. I should have said, you know, all the things, all this, all that. And I say it out loud. And I'll tell you, Matt and Sherry, it's happened before that it's often quite dark out there. Sometimes people are in their yards and they could have totally heard me. And I did not realize it till I was, you know, right up past them. And I just think, my goodness, I hope they didn't hear me say, um, those bad words that I was just saying out loud because I thought no one was able to hear me. So it does though. It helps to articulate your thought down to a sentence to not just yell or cry or something to just really say, here's what I wish I'd said. So I find that helpful. And, you know, eventually I get home and I, I you know, I feel like I've gotten a load off my chest sometimes. Yeah, it, it's a great way to process. And I can, I mean, I can just picture you walking the dog and I, I think you're bold and brazen enough. I mean, I'm not so sure you really even care what the neighbors think. I love the idea of you talking to the dog as you walk along. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. It's so nice. It's like a therapy dog. They say it, dogs are therapeutic, but he offers a, a different sort of therapy. For yeah, so talk I, therapy. Yeah, I love that. He's one of those dogs that I would, I was not a dog person growing up. My family did not have them. And I was kind of forced. This was one of those things. Actually, it's a kind of an alcohol related story. You wouldn't imagine the dog could be related to one, but we got him at a um, school fundraising event. They were selling him as a, you know, a puppy. It was like the whole big feature um, auction item of the night. And we have multiple daughters and only one son. And when we figured out this dog was male and was a good cause, you know, to raise money for the school and all that, my then husband was like, we're getting that dog. And he had been drinking and I did not want a dog. And he <laughs> paid big bucks because he was determined to get it. And he did get it. And I was just like, great. You know, now I have 
all these kids and a puppy. And, (laughs) you know, it just made me mad because it was yet another responsibility that I had to take on because he wasn't going to deal with it. He took it on for me, just like all those kids just magically appear because that's how it works. And (laughs) well, they're all very close together in age and I'm old. I had them ending when I was 40. So I was always tired. They used to, they tell you in the hospital, oh, don't worry, you'll be okay. Wake up and feed your baby. You can sleep when you're old. I'm like, I'm old now. <laughs> get this baby and give it some formula. <laughs> the, the dog, you know, now all these years later, he is my friend. He's old, he's tired. He doesn't walk that fast and he's a great companion. And it's, he's just been, really, we still have neighbors that go, is that the auction dog? Oh yeah, still the auction dog. <laughs> One one of the best things that came out of your ex husband's drinking, right there, the dog. That's great. oh yeah, maybe maybe the best thing. Yeah, maybe the best thing. That's awesome. Well, so we've let the cat out of the bag. That you you are the loved one of an alcoholic. You are your ex husband is an alcoholic. And let's back up a little bit. And now that we've we've talked about, you know, I love talking about your dog. I don't know why. I don't even like dogs, but I love talking about. You. I'm I'm you starting like, to like dogs more. You like some dogs. Yeah. yeah. I love Karen's dog. That's for sure. Um, But so when it comes to the, oh, let's back up before, before the dog, let's talk about how, you know, we, we talk all the time about how alcoholism is a progressive disease. So certainly on day one, when you met your husband, it wasn't as bad as it was on the last day. So can you talk a little bit about how things progressed? Were you a drinker at the beginning, for instance? And like a heavy drinker and did you then mature with childhood childhood which happens often or is your story different I'll just let you tell it rather than me trying to guess at it well so we met when we were both in our early 30s so we had both you know had full jobs and gone to grad school and dated lots of other different people and we're pretty sure what we were looking for but neither of us had been married so um he was from a divorced family. We were introduced by a friend and that made me, gave me a lot of pause because I thought, I just don't like that. It's a bad, statistically a bad indicator. It's obviously not his fault what happened to his parents, but still it's not um, the best indicator of his option or odds of success in his own marriage, which, you know, it's very ironic now because I, my kids are that same statistical, um, in that same statistical situation. So, you know, but anyway, as it turns out, I was right. I just hope that, um, I'll be wrong about my kids, but anyway, we got set up, we went out and he, um, I look back and I think he probably had it a lot, had, had it under control at the time. He had an important professional job. He um, had security clearance for what he was doing. He could clearly not be drinking to excess and going to work with hangovers. And he, he didn't act like he was doing that. Even looking back, I don't think that was going on. He kept it all under control. And in fact, he was pretty good about only drinking, you know, a couple of glasses with dinner, I didn't see out of control behavior or out of control drinking. But I do look back and, you know, that all evolved later as we had um, very young kids in our, in our marriage, because we had a honeymoon baby, got married, and then had a baby nine months later, literally. So there was no time when we were just um, traveling the world or eating out or, you know, enjoying being married and not having kids. I was literally pregnant from, you know, day, whatever, less than 10 somehow. Anyway, I look back and I realized though that one or more fights that we had while dating were alcohol fueled. And I also realized because I didn't grow up in a, an alcoholic home, I didn't know what I was looking at. Mm. I, I am one of those people that, that, 
thinks, how did I get into the situation? You know, why I'm supposedly smart. I had a lot of, you know, an intact home myself. How did I end up picking this one person? And I really think people who are alcoholic learn that it's distasteful to those who aren't, and they learn to hide it. They make sure that you don't know, because obviously I wouldn't go marry an alcoholic on purpose. And right. I, you know, I think he was a, a young, he, he started drinking as a teenager. He was kind of wild in high school. And then he sh shaped up in college and really buckled down and did his work and same in graduate school and was still in that same mode when I met him. I mean, he was literally at his peak, the best he was ever gonna be. And then when we started having children and life became more stressful, and I don't know if it was just his own age, but he then began to drink every single night, a whole bottle of wine in front of the TV. And at first that problem was the money. We, he was in a um, public sector job and I was not in a high paying job. It was enough money for me, but it was not an, I did not want to be paying for alcohol like that. And of course I knew I was pregnant and I was tired and I went to bed and he would stay up drinking and drinking. And we started to have fights about that. And, you know, I look back, I can't remember if he would just say, just, it's not your money. Don't worry about it. Or I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, he can handle a lot of alcohol. He would get up the next day and go to work really no problem, but that's just not healthy. And it made me matter and matter and start to I mean, I didn't really get worried that he was an alcoholic, but it just, it was definitely something that was a sore point in the marriage early on. And then over time, I don't know. Did, I remember we had, an, what? I was just gonna say, did you, what, what's your drinking like at this point? Did you drink with him at all at this point? Well, like we were dating. I did drink wine with dinner, that kind of thing. Sure, sure. You know, I have a conservative personality. I'm much more fun if I do have a glass of wine, but I've never. I don't know. I've been around you a lot. Never with a glass of wine. I think you're a ball. <laughs> oh, so yeah. But, you know, I, I also have never drunk enough to get to develop a tolerance. I, I become quite sleepy and I need to go lie down after about you know, one or two drinks, I would certainly never drive after even really after even one drink, I just wouldn't do it anyway. So, you know, I, I did drink with him right up until we got married. And then once I was pregnant, of course I stopped. And then I was nursing a new baby and then I was pregnant again. And that went on and on for, um, like six years, literally six years and all that time. Um, his job became more stressful. And I remember one time we went to a fundraising event downtown. This was the first time we had left the baby with his um, dad and stepmother who was lovely. I love her still. And um, we went downtown to this event and he was drinking and drinking and he wanted to leave. And I didn't want to, I mean, I wasn't in a hurry to leave. I don't know what his hangup was, but he left me there. This was 20 minutes, 20 miles from uh, the suburbs where our baby was. And he just left me there at this downtown hotel, got the car from the valet and left. This was before cell phones. And I mean, to imagine that happening to this arbitrary person, some young mother, that just makes me sick. That's like a gut punch that somebody could do that. Oh yeah. And I don't even, it's such a traumatic memory. I don't remember how I got home. If a friend came and got me, this was off before Uber too. I didn't, anyway, I don't know what happened, but that even then though, I will say I didn't connect it to the fact that, oh, the drinking is the overriding problem. It was yeah. like, wow, when he's drunk, he's 
terrible, but I didn't think this was going to be like a problem that would destroy our lives together. I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind at that time. It's interesting that you talk about how his job was getting more and more stressful and the drinking would kind of equate to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever met anybody whose job doesn't get more and more stressful as time goes on. I don't know if as we get older, we wear the stress more or if every job ever gets more stressful as mm-hmm. time goes on. More responsibilities because you're getting yeah. promotions and that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, if you stay with the same company, you have people look up to you more. So there's this expectation. Sure. So I think we kind of put out this expectation on ourselves too. And then I think also but that then, the alcohol and, that we're using to manage the stress makes it what we don't realize is it's making the stress less manageable. So we need to drink more to make the management of the stress work. Yeah. So it's this like awful cycle too. Yeah. So, so typical and so it's such a sad story. Well, and I'm, and you know, you and I have talked about this. There's, there's a pressure for um, men to be able to provide. And it sounds like at this point, because you have these young children, are you working or outside of the home? Or are you just staying home with the kids? I- I worked, um, well, interestingly, right after we had our first baby, I had a terrible delivery, but um, was hospitalized for a couple weeks. But because of something we had agreed on, he, um, he quit his job. This was a known thing right around the time we had the baby. Of course, we didn't know I would have a, a complication. But then he stayed home with the baby and I went back to work full time because I was determined to have the medical coverage that I might end up needing. So mm-hmm. that was very interesting. And actually it wasn't that bad. Um, it was pretty good for him to see what was involved in the care of a three month old. You know, I was still breastfeeding and pumping and all that, but you know how, men come home, they expect the house to be clean and tidy and their baby to be alive and uh, dinner to be ready. I came home and all it was, was the baby was alive. That's it. <laughs> that was a disaster. There was no dinner. There were no groceries. There was nothing, but you know, what's the bare minimum? My baby's okay. Okay. I'll take it. Right. So that was a very difficult nine months. Then his job started back up and we, um, I went to work part-time. So I worked part-time up until I actually gave birth to my third child. And then you're right. Then I was home full-time mm-hmm. uh, for 14 or 15 years. Yeah. So then he had some like yeah. level of responsibility That's and right. ball on his shoulders. And then of course the, like now I'm saying the drinking is escalating and, and that's just adding to the anxiety and the internal stress and struggle. But that's, that's true, you know, to provide for, six people is a very big responsibility. And sometimes we, you know, the housewives at home with a bunch of little kids, it is a a lot to deal with yourself as, as the mother that's home like that. But sometimes you forget what a big deal it is for the, for the husband or whoever is the breadwinner in the situation to just have all that on them and know, you know, I've got to, keep this job. I've got to advance. I need to earn more. I need to be on my game because all these people are counting on me. That That's a lot. So did it, did it reach a point, Karen, where he, like, did he recognize that the drinking was becoming a problem or did you convince him of it? Did he try to get sober? Like, did, did so you go that's through? when that whole thing with the rule started. I'll just drink this. I, I'm not a drunk. I only drink wine. Um, you know, I'll drink less. I'll cut back. And at the time, I really thought the most extreme thing I could do, because at the time, of course, I wasn't telling my mother or any of my friends or in any people, you know, I, I didn't even think of the word alcoholic, but eventually I thought, you know, I'm going to look up Al-Anon. And so I looked it up and he was like, you better not do that because then everybody will, you know, know about this. And I thought that's true. And I don't want that to happen. That would damage your situation. So I don't want to do that. But it was like my big threat. Oh, I'm going to go to Al-Anon. I'm going to go to Al-Anon. Of course, I totally should have gone to Al-Anon regardless of anything he said. But I didn't understand anything then. And, you know, we just... Did that make you feel 
I mean, that's a horrible feeling to know that you don't even own your own story. You can't even go get your own treatment because part of your responsibility is to be complicit in the denial and the, the hiding of the truth. So no, at know, the time, I, was, I don't know how I felt, but I didn't even, couldn't have even articulated that. I was just like, I don't know what to do, but I'm not going to do that. I don't want to, you know, uh, yeah cause that problem that he is predicting, uh, you know, that, that would be my fault. So of course I look back now and I, that's, it's not my fault, but anyway, so it, I don't know. I, of course you could look at that and go, well, then why did you keep having children? And I, I guess I think I never believed never that he would let it get to the point where he where our family was even at risk, much less end up getting divorced. I never thought that, mm-hmm. you know, he seemed like a loving dad. Our kids were all, we were so lucky and so blessed that we had any at all at our ages and that they were all healthy and beautiful children. You're just lucky if your kids just happen to look pretty and mine, ours were cute and we had everything. People just on from the outside it just looked like a happy family and so much of the time it was great but you know this thing that he did where he um was stuffing down his feelings and we we didn't talk about the stress at work and he um stayed up late when he really needed to be asleep and he was just drinking and wasting time and money that was a real but i thought that was it i thought that was it but that wasn't it, you know, I didn't know it would be progressive. I didn't know that this was the beginning of a very, very long process. Tell us a little bit about that process. Can you talk about the breaking point and, you know, what led up to it and what emotions were you dealing with as all this happened? Well, yes, um, we moved from our little house to a bigger house. And in that house, we had our, our last child. And, um, you know, most of the time we were pretty happy. Um, our kids were growing up, they were going to school. It's, it's a lot of fun to have, um, you know, kids that age, school age children, preschoolers, after you have babies for such a long time. So they played sports. He was involved with all that. He um, enjoyed them a lot. We all went to church every weekend. It just didn't seem like we were at risk for a disaster, but um, over time, he switched from wine to beer. Then he was drinking a lot of beer in the house at night, and then we started to fight about that. I said, "You've got to, you've got to stop." Our kids are old enough to witness what's happening. They understand mm-hmm. what's what they're seeing. You're like stupefied from seven to 10 every night. And, you know, they go to bed at seven 30. Couldn't you function until then? No, no. So then all those rules would happen and then he would break them. And eventually I, I remember when I took one daughter to her, um, checkup near the end of the year and she was maybe 10 years old. And the doctor said, you know, that's, that's the age where the doctor provides a little more emotional counseling, not just shots and um, blood pressure and eye vision care and all that. You know, they just say, well, how's everything? Because they want to screen for depression or puberty and all kinds of emotional things like that. And she goes, well, how's everything? Is everything pretty good for you? And my daughter said, well, my dad, he's drinking too much. And that was just a moment of out of mouths of babes. And my doctor said, I mean, this pediatrician said, looked at me over her head and was like, you know, cause she knew him. He had brought the kids to the doctor before and he was in the public eye and she was surprised. Hmm. Anyway, that caused the very first of the three rehab cycles that my then husband went through. So he went to a local thing and all the kids were so relieved and so happy. And you know, they always have a family component where you talk about it and the drinker says, you know, I'm 
I have a problem, but it's a disease and I'm trying to get better. And thanks for, you know, participating. And everybody was very sincere and very sure that this was it. And we are finally going to move on from this in our lives. Um, at the time, my youngest kid was eight years old. So they were eight, 10, 12, and 14. But actually that was just the first of three consecutive years of uh, a 30 day rehab at the, near the end of the year around Christmas time. Would he relapse right away when he would come home from the rehabs? No, no. In fact, so the next year after this kind of home managed one, that wasn't residential. The next year, his, his friends organized an intervention. Really? So we had a whole big intervention and the intervention guy said, well, what about your kids? And I said, absolutely not. I will not my, have my kids hearts broken by participating in this. I don't have enough confidence that it's going to work. And if they beg and plead and cry and say, daddy, please get better. And he comes back and is drinking in front of the TV. They'll feel a level of betrayal that I don't want them to feel. So no, they're not old enough to understand that that is possibility and it's not personal. You know, I knew that, but yeah. he didn't know that. they didn't, my kids didn't know that. So he went off to residential rehab in another part of our state. And again, they had family day and you go and you learn about how to do this and that and the disease model and all that. I left so, all my kids with my parents and flew well, and drove and it was a great sacrifice to me, but I did it. When you, when you say he, he went off to that, when you say he went off to that rehab, I, first of all, I totally commend you for your insight because interventions are very, very hit or miss. You know, we've, we've heard lots of terrible stories about interventions gone bad, but did in this case, he, did he go as a result of the intervention in this case? He did, but you know, he's reluctant, but it was just because literally everybody that loved him almost was in the room. Sure, and okay. What could he do? And he was really just, and you know, some part of him did want to stop. I'm sure some part of him did, but yeah. it was certainly not the part that, that wasn't enough by any means. He certainly had not hit bottom because this was multiple years ago. Anyway, and then finally, there was one more of those. Um, I don't know what precipitated that. But um, so seven years ago, he went and was gone for a month. And that time, the kids did come to family day and they all heard all this from the counselor and everything. And we, I was so hopeful that that would be it. I mean, I just didn't understand yet what, what this monster was that we were dealing with. And so, I, so when you would, hmm. would go away, you would, you would let hope come in. You would, uh, Oh yeah. I would try. I would buy in. I would be like, Oh, this is going to be a, this is a better organization. They know what they're doing. They do medical management of detox and your brain chemistry and blah, blah, blah. But of course they did not um, insist that he manage his caffeine intake, his nicotine intake, his nutrition, his fitness, his any of that stuff that you talk about yourself, Matt, that helped you. Um, it, he just wanted to stop and, and that was it, you know, and they're, they have a, outpatient program afterward and he would faithfully go to all that but he would never get anything like a sponsor he would never have any accountability to anybody and once the paid aftercare was over with he would do no maintenance and so it was just a matter he wasn't like building tools for how to deal with emotional stress in life and so it was just a matter of time before he would start to drink again. And so then we started this phase of drinking outside of the house, but not in the house. He would drink on the way home, drink in the yard, drink in the car, but not bring it in. But did you, did you mandate that? Probably. I mean, I, it wasn't that I told him to drink somewhere else. I just said, don't bring it in the house. Yeah. And, and he said, I'm not even drinking. I, you know, it was just so ridiculous. So so my kids all became experts at when he would walk in we'd be at dinner because he would come home late and they would instantly look up at him and they could tell especially the oldest kid 
you know, within a, 10 seconds of was he, had he been drinking a lot or a little, or was he maybe just that day not drunk at all? And they really can tell. It's sickening how perceptive they are. They could tell, you could tell, but he thought he was pulling, pulling one over on oh, you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd be all sitting down at dinner. He would just bypass us all and go, how was everything? He doesn't even know, you know, what they had that day. Oh, and he would just toddle off and pass out in bed after I, you know, we had all that to do. You have to make dinner. You have to talk to them. You have to help them with their homework. You have to get them ready for bed. They have to get themselves ready. They have to make sure they have all their stuff for the next day. Sometimes they have sports practice. There's just so much to do between four and eight, as you well know. And he was just not involved. So, so for you, you, you know, you, you, you let hope come in when he would go away to the rehab and then this would happen again. Was it just like heartbreaking all over again? Was it just crushing when, when you would, when you would like start drinking? Gut punch. Yes. Yeah. I clearly can remember after the last one that he went to, I was, uh, he went off to work and I was, you know, at home full time and I was doing something in the yard and I found three beer cans in the bushes and I thought, I just felt really like someone had kicked me in the stomach. I thought, oh no, it's not fixed. And that was only four months after we had spent all that time and money and invested our hearts and souls in this process and hoping that he would get better. And he had not even been done with the aftercare program that long. And, you know, you find these beer cans and you're just like, oh, we're not done. This is, mm-hmm. this is still happening. So he then experienced these various cycles of he would quit drinking for a few months, then he would go back through it all. And sometimes it got bad enough that he would just leave and go to a motel. And, you know, supposedly because he was so mad and frustrated with me and our kids, but I look back and he just went to go drink all he to, to binge, basically to binge yeah. in a place where nobody was judging him. And yeah. so unfortunately that's, that normalized this idea that we could live separately. That's what happened. You okay. know, that is when my kids realized, hey, it's actually more peaceful and less stressful when, when he's not here. And so then he, he made a habit of doing this regularly. And of course, that costs money, but I wasn't making money, so I could say nothing. And that wasn't even really the problem. The problem really was just that I know what he's doing. He would literally then come to the house in the morning to help drive children to school. So it was just so he could hide how much drink, drink as much as he wanted. Nobody yeah. would have to know. Yeah. Totally yeah. freaking out. He 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 was willing to help in the morning, but not in the evening because that was that was the time to yeah you know, have no rules around basically. So there were months of, um, you know, he would be gone for weeks, not months, but then he would come home and things would be pretty somewhat normal. But, you know, the the damage to the kids was already happening because they could not really trust somebody that was doing that, right? He didn't know their world. He didn't know them. And if he wanted to tell them, no, you can't go to that party, they'd be like, what are you telling me what to do for? You know what I mean? It's just like, you're, you're, you pay the bills, you're sort of there, but all you care about is our sports. And, you know, just, he began to really erode his own moral authority as a parent. And then eventually when our, you know, our son had a tumultuous high school career, largely, I think because of the stress at home and he was immature anyway. And, but just so much of it was not only was there all this negative energy happening, but all the good example and counsel and fun and bonding that you should have with a dad to become a good man, my son missed out on. Sure. He didn't get that. And instead he got not abuse, but just this vacuum and this bad example. And so, you know, naturally he was angry at school. He got in trouble. He didn't put forth his best effort academically. And so it was, 
it was a lot of uh, energy put toward him, trying to help him actually graduate and figure out what to do about college. So when he was a senior, there was a sporting event and um, his dad showed up having been drinking and was thrown out and got arrested. Mm. And at that point, I said to myself, um, that's it. He's going to go off to college and that's the last year he'll be at home with us. And that's how it ended. And I'm not going to let all the younger kids live in a household like that. They need me to fix this. And so I did, I went with the nuclear option, which I really thought would not end up the way it did. I said, look, I want you to move out. And he wouldn't. And I said, well, our state doesn't have legal separation. If you force me to go to a divorce lawyer so I can make you move out, then I will. He goes, go ahead. I said, well, I don't have any money. I need a check. He said, come to my office. I'll give you one. So all that transpired. I made an appointment. I went to the lawyer, gave her the check. And I said, how do I get him to move out? And she said, you have to file and we can get a judge to issue orders. And I thought it will never come to that. The minute I tell him this is going to happen, he will go right to rehab and quit drinking. And that'll, he'll really not let our family be destroyed because that he'll really believe I, I'll do it. And he won't want that. So I did. And he got, um, told that the divorce had been filed and he went ballistic and got so angry. And he said it was about that I had ambushed him and he, he didn't stop drinking and he kept not stopping. And he was very ugly and very vindictive and very um, said every kind of mean thing on text and email and phone calls and our poor son his grandparents took him to college because I couldn't, by then I got myself a, I had been home out of the workforce for 14 or 15 years. I don't have any super useful skills, but I got a very small job, which I really think was providential because I did not know the first thing about how, how to go get a job in the new internet era. But my friend from one of my kids' schools took a picture she said, you have to use LinkedIn. So I put it on LinkedIn and the first company that called me hired me. I went and, you know, interviewed, went through all that and I'm still there. So that was so lucky because I don't think I could have gone through a very strenuous hiring process or through multiple companies. Anyway, my whole purpose was just to have a job where I had my own health insurance so that if I had to get divorced, I could. So you, you, you say that that was lucky, but I, I don't know. It, it was the result of you taking action. One of the quotes that I wrote down once that I, you, you shared with us, you, you, and, I, and I don't know if this is a direct exact quote, but this was the sentiment. You said that waiting for an alcoholic is, is like wasting your life. Hmm. And I know that's one of the messages that I hear from you and I want us to share with because there are people listening to this that are in, you know, very similar situations to the ones that Sherry and I were in and the one that you were, you were in. And that idea of just waiting for it to get better, it doesn't work. And you didn't, you, you called it the nuclear option, but you, you, you know, you did it. You took action. You did what needed to be done for your kids. And well, I can also say during all that time, I went to counseling. We went to marriage counseling together. And finally, the counselor fired us because she said, you never do. Uh, you know, she talked to, to my then husband and said, you, you don't take any of my advice. I don't think it's helpful for you to keep coming because she realized the drinking is the problem. We, we can't build any intimacy, have any parenting conversations that are meaningful, just get past anything. If drinking is always going to compromise his judgment and um, 
ability to be present and, yeah. and to feel real emotions, which it, it was totally ruining everything. Anyway, I continued to go to that counselor. And then when it became impossible because it was an inconvenient location, once I had a day job, then I found another one and I would go at seven in the morning. And that was very helpful. I mean, they really did. I hate that term codependent, but I definitely was doing things that um, made it easier for him to deny the consequences of what he was doing, you know? So um, I did finally take action because I just thought, you know, I am not living in Saudi Arabia where women have no rights and whatever they get stuck with, they're really stuck with it. This is a country where um, I have a legal option. I don't want to be divorced, but if it comes to that, I have to protect my, my kids. And some of my kids are girls. And I thought, what would I tell them? I would say, don't keep living like that. You don't have to keep living like that. It's yeah. tremendously um, demoralizing to feel that someone is always picking alcohol over you. And even though that's not, when you learn more about alcoholism, you know it's not a personal rejection when they come home drunk, it really feels like it. It really feels like they were in their car, they had a decision to make, the decision was to stop and buy booze instead of to come straight home to you and your kids that need, need you, needed him. And it just felt like a slap in the face every time. And I thought, I don't want my kids to think this is a normal, happy family, because it isn't. And they don't have to put up with it. And I, it's my job to protect them. And they, you know what? After we got divorced, it took a few months, but they finally ended up bringing their friends home because it was a predictable and safe place for them to be. And that was, I literally cried tears of joy when I figured out what had happened. I thought, hey, these kids are here. They're, my kids are not going to somebody else's house to get away. They are yeah. letting their friends come here. They can watch a movie. They can make a cake in the kitchen. They can play outside in the yard and then come in because there's nothing scary that's gonna happen when dad gets home. So you've made this decision that must have been not only heartbreaking, but you must have had, you know, yes, I, I think I'm doing the right thing, but I'm also filled with self-doubt. That must have really pushed you over the edge toward I've done the right thing when the kids are bringing their friends home and you've realized you've well, created- that took a long time. But the thing was that he kept drinking for more than a year after I filed and all that time, the divorce wasn't really proceeding. It was just sitting there. It had been filed, but it was, I didn't want to push it. I really wanted to give him every chance to, to sober up and go to his own counseling and figure it out. And eventually he um, did quit drinking and he moved into a sober living situation, which is a house where, or an apartment complex run by, um, not at social services, but just like somebody that's there to administer meetings and drug tests and the agreement, which is you don't come there if you're drinking, you don't drink when you're there. And so it's very structured. They had required meetings on multiple nights a week. And this enabled him to stop drinking for more than a year, but it was so mandatory. Once again, he didn't really change on the inside himself. He was just doing what he had to do, the bare minimum to stay alive and to stay in that place. And then when he had a life event happen, he had no new tools and he started drinking again. And then he, then he, that was when he, this was in year two after the divorce had been filed, but before it had been pursued, then he said, that's it. I want a divorce. You filed it you got it. I'll do it. I'll give you everything that you need to, you know, continue in your standard of living. Well, maybe not you, but at least the kids. I mean, he was very ugly because of course, then he was drinking again. Right. And so at that point, I just thought, okay. I mean, I, I, I like to take credit for being able to walk away, but I really can't. He did something I wasn't able to do for myself. I was able to file, but I really could not, could not really, really tell the lawyer, put the hammer down. I didn't do it. He did it. 
He said, find out if that case is still alive. If not, I'll get a lawyer and file it myself. And so I asked her and she said, I don't know why it didn't get, I don't know, somehow expire, but it didn't. And she said, okay, I'll come up with a proposed split of assets or you know something like that. And it's just, you hear those words, you don't think you're gonna be divorced. You know, you're married in a religious tradition that doesn't um, take divorce lightly. But I just got to the point where I believed that to be apart would be better. And so that's what happened. So we did. You know, first of all, just real quick, I think, I don't think when you tell that story, I don't think you give yourself enough credit for the action that you took. The filing and the separation is what created the space for healing for the kids. And whether he's the one that, you know, did, pushed it across the finish line or not, I, I, I'm very impressed with you for the decisions that you made along the way, all along the way. Um, but you, you just brought up something which is exactly where I wanted to go next. When we first met you, Karen, you shared with us, and I think this is when I really realized how much I liked you because you were bold enough to say, hey, Matt and Sherry, on your podcast, you, you have multiple times said things like, oh, you know, we take marriage so seriously. Not everyone does take marriage as seriously as we do. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we hung on, that Sherry hung on so long and that we made it. And you shared with us how hurtful that that was when we said that, because marriage is very, very sacred and important to you. And just because your story ended the way it does, did, doesn't mean that marriage wasn't important to you and you didn't try, try like hell and try everything you could think of. Um, and it was a real like eye-opening experience for me. I thank you so much for being honest with us that way. But I think it's really important for listeners to understand sometimes no matter how much you believe in the sanctity of marriage, no matter how much your religious traditions are that you don't get divorced, sometimes it's the only option. And I mean, it. look where you are now. I'm I'm so impressed with where you are now. And had you not, you know, way back when, when you decided to meet with the lawyer and start the process, you, you know, God knows where you'd be, but it wouldn't be in the healthy place you are now. Do you think about that sometimes? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, I think I might've mentioned earlier that one of the, one of the times it's hardest for me, ironically, is even though I do want him to really, really turn the corner and have the change of heart that would help him stay sober forever. And I mean, I think he's had childhood trauma. I think there's a lot of things that he is pushing down that he does not, it's a place he doesn't want to go. And since he won't do that, this is going to keep, you know, bubbling up, but I want more than anything for him to get better. But ironically, when he does get better, when he cycles through, you know, goes back, he doesn't go to rehab, but he goes to detox like every two to three months because y'all have a um, fall off the wagon and start drinking, then have a bad spell where he's, you know, not going to work, not doing things he should be doing. Then eventually he figures out, well, this is not a sustainable situation and he'll go to detox, which means, you know, he can't just taper off or stop drinking. He's already physically dependent again. He's got to have medical management to stop. That's a lot of alcohol in your system. I mean, right. definitely it's a, it's a spiral, but sometimes for months at a stretch, he'll be okay. He, you know, attends to his appearance. He sounds great on the phone. He participates with our kids, wherever they are. He just sounds so lovely. And I just think, why can't this be my husband? Why can't this be my life that we're together? Why couldn't we have it? And then I think, I, I mean, I really had to write this down. So I'm going to just read it. I remember these things I tell myself. First of all, if I hadn't left, he may still never have ever quit at all, right? So maybe somehow he realized losing his whole family, that's pretty bad, but he doesn't want to also lose his profession. Also, based on everything we know, that's unlikely to be permanent. From He hasn't managed to do it yet. I mean, I hope he does, but so far he hasn't. 
and it's just a matter of time. And um, even if it did finally become permanent, I've already missed out on the last four years of this crap, all these cycles. You know, my kids have had a more stable situation. They have one parent that's not on edge and anxiety ridden and, and mad all the time because I'm always worried about that, which I really was for the last, I don't know, seven years of marriage. Definitely not miss personality, miss congeniality. I was not nice because I was just in fear for my life, right? My poor kids, the slow motion car wreck that we were all living through, mm. very stressful. I'm not proud of some of those moments. So I'm very glad that now I'm not in that situation and my children aren't either. And also, I really think that, um, you know, this is a case where the cure will be self-evident. If you ever, it's like you, Matt, right? We know that you're better because you act better. You seem better. You're different. He's my... Then husband is, is not like that. He still has a lot of behaviors that are, um, even when he's not drinking, they're still not ideal. And, you know, he talks about himself a lot. He engages with strangers too much. He, ugh, so many things. So it's not that I have to ask, are you, learning new things, are you getting new tools, any of that? I know he isn't, because if he were, he would come to my children, maybe never to me, but he would come to his children and say, I am so sorry. I realize what I did and I know I can't make it up to you, but I wanna try and now, you know, I, I get it. Because he's never even said that. You know, you've talked many times about the futility of a hollow apology. And I just think, yeah, I'd like to get one, one of those someday. Cause he's just not even well enough to say, I'm sorry yet. He's just not, he just can't face it. All the carnage in the past, he can't even look at it. And I wouldn't want to either if I were him. I, I like how you, like, I really feel like you've come to grips with what has happened in your life, where you are, what the future holds. One of the things that people say to us so often that are in situations, either they're newly divorced or they're seriously considering it, is what if I divorce him and then he sobers up? How, like, how bad am I going to feel because I can't have the husband that uh, I want? Yeah. Well, that was an actual threat that my husband would make. He would say, I'll sober up, but not for you. Like, mm. oh. That I mean, that's the tip awful. of the iceberg of the kinds of ugly things he would say. I'll oh, yeah. sober up, but not for you. You'll, you'll all be, have a great life. I'll travel. I'll do this and that. I'll take the kids, but you know, you're, you're not motivating to me or I don't, you know, we don't have it. Or I don't even know if we were ever happy or I'm just horrible, horrible things. Yeah. That sounds, sounds like it would come out of the mouth of an alcoholic. You heard things like that and worse for me, not that exact thing, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you guys talk about how you had these horrible, vicious fights. And I know that we actually didn't because he would say things like that. And I would just not respond. I would just say, I can't even, I, I would just be silent. You know, I would just think now I know what kind of person you are. The person that says that to me, I'm not the kind of person that would respond in kind. I'm just not even going to try to defend myself or respond to that. You know, another thing, one of the most hurtful things, I don't know if I should even say this, but it might help some of your, your listeners because I was, again, just so sad that this was happening to me. And one of the things he texted me was, you know why divorce is so expensive? Because it's worth it. Huh. Wow. That's heartless. I cannot even say that now without choking up. It's just, I can't believe someone would say that. Yeah. So it sounds like he made it pretty easy in the beginning. I mean, cause you were, like you said, you were newly married. You got pregnant right away. You started having kids and it's like, you didn't have any, you know, newlywed time. Right. But then 
it seems like it just, you kind of like got in the deep end of emotional disconnection. So you didn't even really know each other or really, you know, you didn't have a good like foundation before. So it was really easy to just kind of disconnect in a way because that protected you a little bit from not responding and having those arguments. So you're probably right because yeah, we didn't even, we didn't even have a long dating or engagement even before we got married. So yeah, you're right. All the time where you'd be laying down all those bonds of affection and um, connection, ours were, were there. I mean, I think we were definitely in love and happy when we got married, but um, we didn't have a, a long, long shared history and maybe it was easier for, for him to just say, you know, I've lived without you before and I can do it again and goodbye. You know, and if I don't um, deprive my children financially, I will have done more than a lot of people, which sadly is true. Yeah. And he was, he was fair to us in the, in the divorce proceedings, but, you know, and, and again, I would never dismiss that at all. There's a lot of men that don't take care of their families like they should. They're much, they're horrible. They're evil. I, you know, I don't think my um, husband was evil or horrible or any of those things. I just think he kind of feels like he bought his way out of a problem and now he's entitled to, you know, do what he wants because he did that Mm -hmm. and still drinking or not drinking, you know, as he feels is necessary. So getting the alcohol out of your life, sadly, that isn't where the story ends because you've still got a lot of healing and recovery to do yourself. And in, in that process of recovery and getting better, you, you do a lot of different things. You, you do a lot of things to take care of yourself. And I think that's important for the listeners to hear. Can you talk a little bit about what, you know, self-care is not just bubble baths. We, we, we say that all the time. What, what does self-care mean to you? How do you take care of yourself? How do you, besides walking with and, and confiding in the dog? Well, I grew up with a very non-athletic family. So I don't know how to play any sports. I have no skills, but I'm now a regular jogger. I'm forced myself into this habit and it's so helpful to me physically and mentally. So, you know, just exercise. It's cheap. All you need is shoes to go jog around your neighborhood. And um, that's important to me. I, um, what else do I do? You know, I eat carefully. You know, I don't over, I don't know, just a general healthy diet. I don't drink very much ever. I mean, it's just the circumstances have to be like I might need to be at home with my family at dinner and then I'll have a glass of wine because I don't have to drive or do anything, just go to bed right after that, you know? So I'm not drinking that much. Um, if I, I was going to Al-Anon regularly up until COVID, I found that very helpful. It was just on a Saturday and that was, I, I didn't want to go, but three different people from different parts of my life had mentioned to me Oh, you, you, if you haven't been to Al-Anon, you might like it, or it might be helpful. And I thought that is totally weird that these three diverse people that have no reason to recommend it are recommending it. So I thought I would try it. And that turned out to be very helpful to me. Um, I journal relentlessly. That's, I find it very helpful to process thoughts through writing them down. Um, when I had to travel recently with um, one of my children, I got a massage, which felt like just complete decadence. I don't really care for bubble baths, but that was just like, I don't know, an expensive bubble bath to me (laughs) to just be able to, um, I I have a lot of stress in my shoulders because I, my office is a, my, my job is an office job. So I'm always sitting around typing. Anyway, it's, it's not a huge amount, but I, I really try to apply tools. I also read self-help. I listen to Ted talks on 
you know, relationships and things like that. And I really try to um, apply useful things, things that I've heard. Like one of them is when you get anxious or upset, name the feeling, name it, figure it out. What is it exactly that's bugging you? Don't just walk around with a rock in your shoe. Look at the rock. What kind of rock is it? And I have really found that so helpful because sometimes I just think it's the person I'm in the room with at that time, but no, it's something that happened earlier in the day at, at work or at home before I went to work or something. I really think about it that way. And then I realize, well, I don't want to cause a new problem by snapping at the person I'm with now. So let's not do that. Let's solve it when we get back to where that problem started. That's helpful to me to just be more conscious about my life. It's great. It's great. One of the main reasons that you're in this place of healing and recovery now is because of how much you love and care for your kids and you wanted them to be in a safe and protected environment. Just tell us the last question. Tell us about your relationship with your kids. Has it strengthened throughout all of this? How is it going with the kiddos? Well, it's different with each of them, as you might expect. With my younger ones who have been at home during the last four years when it's been better, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And with my oldest who went off to college, he and I kind of have a been through the war together bond. Sure. And there was one other kid who got the worst of me when she was in high school and Luckily, COVID resulted in her being at home more now. And so we've had a chance to um, consciously work on repairing that situation because um, it was difficult for her. It was difficult for me. I do think because she's young, she doesn't realize my perspective very much. As she gets older, she'll... maybe appreciate that more. But in the meantime, we are trying to build some happy memories and bake those into our life so that. Yeah. We have them to reflect on instead. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can't see a, a way that the, as they get older, that it doesn't continue to strengthen the bond between you and your kids because you took action when action needed to be taken. You are truly an inspiration for anyone who gets to know you. I know Sherry and I both feel that way. Um, you put the healing of yourself and your kids first, and it's such a hard, hard, hard thing to do when you're in the in the in the bad place. And uh, we're just so proud to know you, Karen, and so thankful to you for coming on and telling your story today. Well, I've gotten a lot out of um, your program. I mean. At first, when I started, I was really envious of all those women who were still in relationships with their with their um, husband, um, even though he was still drinking, at least they still had a chance. But after listening to them week after week, I um, I really hope that some of them can see that it can be better. You can survive. Even if you're a housewife, you can have a life on the other side and peace is worth a lot. And somebody recently said, um, I'd rather be alone than lonely in my marriage, lonely with someone all the time. And I look back when someone said that, I realized I had that for, for a decade, really, for more than five years before I got, before I filed for divorce. And then there was four more years after that. So yeah, I felt alone a lot. And now I am alone. And yes, sometimes it is kind of hard on a Friday night, but overall, just the predictability of life, just the lack of this anxiety about what's gonna happen in the, in the short term and the long term, you know, 
I was waiting. I feared the worst. The worst would be divorce and my family getting destroyed and having to worry about money and having to work full time and leaving my kids. And all those things came to pass. All the things I was so afraid of. But I'm still alive. I survived and my kids are actually better off. The worst happened and it, it was survivable. So yeah. for that, now he can't do that to me. Now I don't have to worry. Now that sword is not over my head. He cannot do it to me now. It already happened. So that's it. That's it. And I know that you've mentioned <clears throat> that, you know, that the family was destroyed, but it seems like it would have been destroyed had you stayed together in that toxic environment. So you really, you're, it's not destruction. It's actually like a rebirth and a yeah. rebuilding. And oh, Sherry, that is such a great thing. I've never thought about that like that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thank you for talking about this with us. Um, it's a side of the story that, you know, really needs, needs to be heard. If people are in a position where they've got a decision to make, you know, the one decision isn't isn't the end of the world. Um, that you know, got to do what's best for you and your kids, and you are an inspiration to us. So, Karen, thanks for taking the time. Where we should tell people where this will come out next week, but we are recording this on a Friday night, so you definitely had plans this Friday night because um, this is yeah this, this is something. So thank you. There's one thing that I don't know if you wanted this on the tape, but you can always just cut it off. <laughs> it's, it's bugging me that you, you call them loved ones of alcoholics, right? We're actually people that love an alcoholic. I don't know if I'm loved by the alcoholic. I really don't. But we are all people who love someone who, who is a drinker that has an alcoholic problem, you know? Because yeah. you don't know if it's reciprocated. So we should say who loves an alcoholic. Yeah, because yeah. that's what we all are, right? We all love someone who has an alcoholic, you know, even you, Sherry, you love an alcoholic or you did or he is one or was one or whatever. But am I a loved one of an alcoholic? I don't even know. It doesn't even, I don't want to define myself by what he does, but I can define myself as someone that will always love him in some way and yeah. will always want him to get better. Well, that's why you're such a beautiful person because I don't know if everyone anyone I don't know if everyone who's been through what you've been through can feel that way but you do well, and doing what you're doing because there's definitely a um a large large need for it yeah well we thank you for coming on for the intoxicated podcast for my wife Sherry Salis we want to thank our friend and our guest tonight Karen and we thank you for listening We'll see you on the next episode.